The first commandment is God saying to Israel, okay, Israel, we are married now, you and I. Not you and I, not us, but this, you, you follow me, right? God and Israel. Uh, we are going on a journey together, and no one else gets to be a part of this union. It's just you and me. This is what God is saying to Israel. And then the second commandment comes in and expands on the first by explaining to Israel how that worship, how that journey needs to look, right? How they should actually go about the process of worshiping this God that they are now in a relationship with. Because remember, God is helping this people develop for the first time their identity as his people. They don't even know how to worship God. They've just been uh, they've just kind of been expelled out of slavery in Egypt, and they don't actually know how to even go about the business of worshiping this God that has just rescued them. They're confused about this, and God is attempting with these Ten Commandments to help them figure all of that out, right? He's trying to help them understand both who He is and who they are in the light of what He has just done for them. It's actually a pretty confusing place, and the Israelites were for sure in this kind of nebulous zone, but God is quite clear. You are to have no other gods because I'm the God who saved you, and when you have no other gods, you're not to have any other idols, right? This is what God is saying. But the second commandment is also a kind of window into how Israel is supposed to worship God, how they are supposed to worship God, because it seems that God is also saying, the way you worship me is different than the way you worship any other gods that are around, that are around you. Because you've come from a context that says the way you worship a god is via a temple or, through an, or with an idol. But now God is saying to the people of Israel, you can't worship me even with the use of images or idols. So what I want to do this morning is to kind of walk through this second commandment with you kind of in detail this morning, because there's some stuff that I think uh, is pretty pertinent that God is trying to communicate to people, and some stuff in here that people often misunderstand. Uh, so, I want to walk through this, this passage of Scripture with you in, in a little bit of detail, in hopes that we can kind of bring out some of the substance of what God is saying, and why it is that He says this strange thing about idols after He's already been clear with Israel about not having other, any other gods. So, the first section of uh, this passage says this, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. Now, one of the main reasons this is stated so clearly is because as we said a bit last week, idol worship was a big issue in this day. It, like in many religions in our day, idol worship or veneration was the most common form of religious practice in their day. People had idols in their homes. They used idols in religious, uh, for religious functions. The, the idol worship was a very, very common daily even practice for people in this time. And idols were simply everywhere. Most people had numerous idols. Most people uh, went to uh, venerate or worship these idols often. Uh, they were everywhere. And here you have Israel's God saying to his people, in this world where idols, there's just a proliferation of idols everywhere we go, no idols, no images. No images of any other gods for sure. That's kind of a given based on the first commandment. But what is interesting about this passage is that God seems to be saying to Israel, you can't use images to worship me either, right? 
Yahweh, the, the God of Abraham, is not supposed to be used, is not supposed to be worshipped through the use of idols. You're not supposed to depict God in any way, God is saying to Israel. And this is very strange. It must have thrown Israel from, for a loop. They wouldn't have even understood how to worship God without the use of idols. It would be like somebody telling you that you need to eat soup with a fork. This is how strange it would have seemed to them. Worship without idols would not have made any sense. And yet God says, you can't worship idols or images of me, right? And you're going to have to learn to worship me without the use of these images. But the question then becomes, why did God say this? Why, why did he not want them to use images in the first place? What, what was it about an image of God or a depiction of God that was so unacceptable? It makes sense if he would have said, you just can't have any images of foreign gods like Baal or Molech, of course, right? But if you want to make some images of me, that's fine because that, that'll help you worship me. Well, the reason behind it, and I think... Uh, I think you have to kind of go back. This is, one of those, this is one of those ideas that makes sense if you read the whole of the story of the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible. If you have a, if you have a thorough picture of the story that's leading up to this, you'll see some clues that are pointing at why, in fact, God doesn't want Israel to worship idols, why he doesn't want them to incorporate uh, images into their worship of him. But actually, you find this out quite clearly if you go back to Genesis chapter 1. If you have your Bibles, you can flip there, but it'll also be on the screen. Genesis chapter 1, verses uh, 26 through 27 says this, Then God said, Let us make mankind in, in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. In the image of God, he created them. There's that image language again, right? Only this time, the image is people. It's humanity. God created humanity and stamped them with an image, meaning that this creation story shows us that humans should not go out looking for images to worship. Rather, we should be images that worship. God did not intend for us to worship other created things. He intended for us to worship Him and then reflect His goodness and love out into creation. But the great struggle and temptation is to exchange this high calling of being a created thing who worships the creator, right? To exchange that high calling uh, for the temptation to just go and worship created things. To find things that God actually made and reflect those things rather than the God who created those things. It's, it's like uh, exchanging something important for something lesser, Right? To exchange this high calling of worship for something that's more base, that's simpler, that makes maybe more sense at times, but is not as good. You see, God never intended Israel to worship anything other than Him. They were never meant to worship anything other than Him because God knew that what you worship, you become. 
And God wants his people to become like him, to become like him. You see, Israel would never be his image, his representatives, if they spend all of their time worshiping and becoming like something lesser, like something created. Israel was intended to worship the creator, not the created, but too often they exchanged their high calling for a baser one. And this is exactly what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 25. He says this, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. It's like if God let Israel worship images, even if those images were artistic depictions of him, they would not be able to be what God created them to be and would quickly exchange the truth about God for a lie and instead serve and worship the created thing rather than the creator. See, God knew that they would begin to put all of their emphasis, all of their onus, all of their focus on the image and not on God because this is what people do. We look for cheap substitutes to fill in the places where we don't want to experience the reality or we don't think the reality of worshiping God makes much sense to us. And so we find these cheap substitutes. And if God had allowed Israel to find to fill in the cheap substitute, even if that cheap substitute was an image of him, they would begin to worship and put all of their onus on that image rather than on the God who created them and longed for them to be his image. Does this make sense? God longs for a people who represent him, who commune with him, who worship him in spirit and in truth, not simply other created things, not images, not, not pieces of this world that God created good, yes, but, but not, the, not the full thing. God does not want us to be formed into the image of a created thing. He wants us to be formed into his image so that we can reflect his goodness and his grace out into the world. This is what he wants And this is why God is so clear about Israel not worshiping these images, not worshiping these idols. And this is why, after he says this, there comes a really stern warning, doesn't there? A warning that when we read it feels really, really harsh, actually. And honestly, this this passage has been misunderstood uh, in Jesus' day and in our day, Throughout and throughout the history of the church. And this is what it says. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation for those who, uh, of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. So, unlike the first commandment, the second commandment comes with a warning of, for those who do not keep it, right? It comes with a kind of warning And that warning comes across, let's be honest, pretty harsh. God is coming in real hot here, isn't he? Right? Punishing four generations of kids for something that their grandparents did does not seem fair, does it? I don't know about you, but I don't want to be held to account for the things my great-great-great-grandfather did. He didn't even have electricity, right? Like... I don't want to be punished for those things. It doesn't seem fair, does it? It's not fair to hold me to account for the things that my grandparents did, does it? And, I, and th- so when we read this passage, it can either do a few things. It can either make us go, okay, God is not fair, right? 
Because if God were fair, he would just hold my grandparents to account for their sin, not me, right? Or we think, well, if this is the way it is, right, I just have, this is the reason that one thing went bad in my life was because my grandpa must have cussed at somebody when he was, you know, when he was, when he was driving his horse-drawn carriage down Main Street, right? This, this, is, this is some of the thinking that we can get into. But I think if we look a little deeper into this passage, we, see, we can see that there's something slightly different going on here, especially when we read this passage in the light of the rest of Scripture. So, uh, but what I want to say first about this is that first, this warning is a kind of ca- uh, clue into God's character, into God's character. And you might say, man, I don't like God's character in this passage. But what I want to draw your attention to is this idea of that God is jealous. God is jealous. Now, jealousy isn't a thought, isn't a, uh, an emotion that we very often associate with God, is it? In our heads, God, the God is a, is a stoic uh, being, right? We don't think of him as jealous. But this word jealousy really is used to talk primarily about two people in relationship, primarily a husband and a wife. This, this idea of jealousy in this passage very much has a love connotation to it, that God is in some real and true sense uh, so in love with Israel that if they go in a different direction and they don't want to be his people, he gets quite jealous about it. He is quite frustrated, Right? So God is not a God who is stoic, who is detached, who is far off from us. God is a God who is very present. God who is a God who has emotions. God is a God who has a will, right? The, the God that we see represented here in the Scriptures is not just like uh, up somewhere, right? This is the image we have in our head. He's just up in heaven, like playing chess, paying attention to what we do, and just kind of writing in a book about the bad things we did and the good things we did. No, this is not the God of the Scriptures. The God of the Scriptures is far closer to us than that, and is far more near to us than that. And if we simply say that God is kind of far off, maybe vaguely interested in what we're doing, then we have all kinds, we get kind of all kinds of leeway in our life. But if this God is intricately involved in our lives, if He is close to us, if He is concerned, if He is emotional about us, that's a different ballgame, isn't it? And this is the God that we see represented in Scripture. This is not a God with a big bushy beard standing in heaven, just kind of looking down, hoping that we do okay, right? This is not the God we see represented here. But this is how we get, we get confused all the time. My daughter this week got God confused with Santa Claus, to which I said, I'm a wonderful pastor, right? I'm an excellent, excellent father and pastor. Uh, that, 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 that Nora thinks Santa Claus and God are the same person. But make no mistake, right? God in the Scriptures is far more emotional. He's far more in tune with us. He's far more concerned with us than that. This God cares deeply. He feels deeply, and He longs for His people to worship Him alone and live only for Him, because He created them for that very purpose, and he, will, and he knows beyond a shadow of a doubt that nothing else will make them happy. Nothing else will make them fulfilled. Nothing else will make them flourish. And what will happen if they don't do that, we read in the second part of this passage? What will happen if they don't put their uh, faith and trust in God? generations will feel the weight of that sin and disobedience. But the question is, right, the question, and here's the question, 
And this is the question that some people might ask if they get really frustrated with God. Is God actually punishing here? Is he the active agent of punishment? Is he saying, your grandpa did this, and so now I'm going to hurt you, right? Is this the type of God we serve? Is he like, is he jealous in the way that, uh, that uh, somebody can be jealous in which they would want to inflict punishment on us then? Because that's what it feels like, right, when we read this passage. Is he actually actively bringing judgment on future generations because of what these ancestral people did? Now, I don't think that's necessarily the case. And the main reason I think that's not the case is the idea that children will directly suffer because of the sins of their parents, that they will be directly punished, that God will put his judgment on them like a thumb, is explicitly contradicted elsewhere in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. You can read it later, but Deuteronomy 24, 16, God says, this is not how I do things. Ezekiel 18, 4, God says again, this is not how I do things. And Jesus says it explicitly in John 9. So how does this work, right? Why are the kids getting punished if God is not the one actively punishing them? A few things here. First, we have a tendency to read these laws individually, right? We have a tendency to say, if I don't do X, Y, and Z, then X, Y, and Z is going to happen to me, that God will personally harm me, because we have this faulty image of God in our head. But what you have to keep in mind is this, this is a corporate, this is, God is speaking to a group of people here, right? And the, and the way that a group conducts themselves, themselves has far-reaching implications for the rest of that group down the line. Does this make sense? So the way that uh, Iowans, laws, let's just say, for instance, laws that Iowans pass about, say, the speed limit in our state have far-reaching implications down the line for the coll- this collective group we call Iowans, which are the best people in the nation, hands down. I've never lived, I've never enjoyed living anywhere else. Uh, I've lived other places. But there, there are far-reaching in, in, implications for that, right? Decisions that our government make now set up uh, situations that our children will have to endure, correct? Things that we do now have, uh, have implications down the line for future generations. It, the, this, this passage seems to be saying that the way that this collective group, Israel, conduct themselves now as it relates to the worship of God will affect their children, Right? It will naturally, there are natural ramifications to sin, and that sin will naturally have ramifications down the line for their children. This makes sense. We understand this. This is the way the world functions. God is not looking in this passage for a random smattering of faithful people. He is looking for an entire people, a nation, a group who will represent Him in the world, right? He's not looking for solitary individuals to follow His law. He wants solitary individuals follow, to follow his law so that they can be a part of a larger movement of, of uh, God's grace in the world. This is what he's looking for. This is what the Old Testament scholar Peter uh, Eames says about this. He says, it seems in the second commandment that the second commandment is teaching that both obedience and disobedience have far-reaching implications for Israel's life as God's covenant people. If they disobey, the effects uh, will be felt for a long, long time. This is, what, this is what I think is happening in this passage. And we know this to be true, don't we? We know this to be true. Our dysfunction, our sin has ramifications. 
Uh, and our sin, no matter how private or personal we think it may be, affects others, doesn't it? And in many cases, that it affects those closest to us, our loved ones, the most, doesn't it? The people we love the most tend to be the most injured by our dysfunction, by our sin, by our problems. So if, if that is true, and if the sin of this people Israel will lead them down this wrong path, right, and it will cause all these kind of negative ramifications in their lives, it is the natural that if they do this, their children will ultimately uh, be affected by that. And that God is displeased with this action because he is a jealous God. And he longs for not only the, the current Israel that he's speaking to, but the, the generations of this nation that will come after it to also be faithful to him, to also be close to him, to also be his people. And by not worshiping God the way that God says you should worship him in this passage, it's, God seems to be saying that I don't want this relationship to be severed. Thus, I am jealous, and I'm telling you on the front end that if you don't do things this way, it's not going to go well for you. Not necessarily because it's going to be God's thumb on the nation of judgment, because the natural ramifications of one's poor actions are that themselves and the people around them are affected by those actions. Does this make sense? I think this is what God is saying. So, the question is, God is quite clear here, isn't he? He's quite clear both about what they are to do and not do, and he's clear about what will happen to them if they don't uh, follow through on what he says. But the question then becomes, why does Israel struggle with this so much? Because they don't actually do what God says. God, I don't know if you're familiar with this story, but the people wander around the wilderness. So they're on the other side of the Red Sea right now. God has delivered them from Egypt, and they just go wander around. They wander around the desert for two generations. And the reason God says that they do that is because there's so many people in this generation that he was speaking to in this passage who gave themselves to the worship of idols that he was just kind of waiting until they all died off so that he could recommunicate this idea to the next generation. And he actually does that later in the book of Deuteronomy. Because he's just waiting for all the bad seeds to kind of naturally go away, right? So that he can start over with their kids. Why do they struggle so much with this? Why do they struggle so much with this? Well, first of all, I think it's natural. I think it's natural for us to struggle with this. But I also have a couple, uh, a couple ideas from the text and from the story of why Israel struggled so much with this uh, not worshiping idols thing. So the first thing, I think, one of the first reasons they struggled with it is worshiping idols is easy. Worshiping idols is easy. It was easier for them to worship idols because it did not require them to engage their hearts. It's just about external activity, right? It's just about perfunctory religious acts. This is why... Uh, Things like moralism, moralism in our day can become an idol because we make uh, the following of Jesus just about following perfunctory uh, moral rules or codes, and they do, but those things don't actually transform us on the inside. You see, to worship God the way God wanted to be worshipped by Israel in the Old Testament required something more than just go going through the motions of worship. It required uh, a heart transformation to worship a God that you could not see that you could not interact with the way you wanted to interact with, required some type of heart transformation on the part of Israel. But they were unwilling to do this, and it seemed far easier than for them to go to an idol rather than to God. 
And this is why people make idols in our day too, isn't it? Because it's easy. This is why in church sometimes people make idols out of worship style because it's nice and it's comfortable and it's easy. This is why even sometimes right belief can be seen as an idol. This is why uh, all kinds of things in our lives become idols because they're external and they're easy and they're comfortable and I can go to them to make myself feel good, right? They're accessible to me because they're physical and they're close and we go to them because they're easy. That's one. Number two, worshiping idols is, uh, worshiping an idol is predictable. When you worship an idol, you know exactly what uh, to do, don't you? I need help with my crops, right? I have a lot of crops. I don't know if you know this about me, <laughs> but, I, but I, I need help with my crops, and so I take an offering to this idol who's supposed to help me with my crops, and I want to make that God happy so that my life goes well, so I do X, Y, and Z, right? This is what, this is, it's predictable. I know what to do. I know the steps, but this is not how God actually works, because God is a person, right, with a will, and God is anything but predictable. The God of the Scriptures is anything but predictable, and we go to idols because we want the predictable thing. I don't feel good about myself. You know what will make me feel good about myself? A nice pair of slim-cut jeans, right? (laughs) As slim-cut as possible for me, guys. Always tight clothing on this guy. Uh, The we go to them because they're predictable, right? You know, you know a little retail therapy will make you feel good. You know it, right? You, you know that that thing that you do that makes you, that makes you feel comfortable and makes you feel like you're in control is going gonna, is gonna to work, at least for a minute. You know it's going to work. But ultimately, it will let you down, That predictability is often not what we need in this life. But when we worship God as God is, when we worship God as God has revealed himself, not as a created thing, but as the creator, we cannot bend his will to ours, can we? We cannot make him do what we want him to do. It is not predictable at all. Have any of you read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the C.S. Lewis book? Or maybe you watch the movies. Lewis's books are these little parables that tell us uh, certain truths so that kids can understand them, or adults, uh, through this story uh, and seeing life, these little parables through the lens of the Christian faith. And in, in, in an attempt to help us see aspects of God's character, Lewis has this character named Aslan, right? As- Aslan, uh, who, is, who is this great and powerful lion in the story, and he represents God, or Jesus, or whoever. And there are these little kids in the story of, uh, in the Narnia stories as well. And these, uh, in the first book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, these, the wardrobe, these, uh, these kids start hearing about this lion, Aslan, who's kind of like the ruler of the world. And one of the little girls, her name is Susan, has this conversation with a beaver, a talking beaver, because it's a fantasy story, uh, about Aslan and what he's like. And she says, oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man, because they'd heard about this person, Aslan. And she, she asked the question, is he quite safe? Is he safe? 
I, I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. When we worship God as God, not as an idol, we can be assured that it is not safe, that it is not predictable, but that God is in, in that worship very, very good. When we give ourselves over to the worship of idols, we live these kind of narrow and predictable lives. I don't know if you've been to the mall on Black Friday, but the only word that ever comes to my mind, and I, no offense, I, obviously I was there for this, so I'm not passing dispersions, uh, but cattle, right, is, a, is an accurate description at times, right? We live these narrow and predictable lives where we're always kind of doing the same thing over and over and over, assuming that, the, that it will return something different to us. But to follow God as God, to, to worship God as God is, is not a predictable or safe thing. It will take you places and do things for you and to you that are not safe, that are not predictable, that are not maybe even fun at times, but are ultimately good, that are good. Ashley and I have had two or three weeks notice before we moved to this town. Two or three weeks. We like sold everything we could sell and then we threw the rest in boxes and we moved real quick. I have friends who have uh, lived in places and whose lives have taken them to places that you would not ha have ever imagined, have done things and seen things and experienced things in their lives that were just absolutely unbelievable. They might not ha be rich people. They might not have all of the status markers that mean success in America, but their lives are beautiful. They're beautiful because they worship a God who is unpredictable, and they've submitted their lives to God as God actually is, not as an idol, not as something that they can control or manipulate, rather as a God who has a plan and a purpose for them that is at times scary, but ultimately good. I don't know about you, but I want to live a life of eternal significance. I don't want to live a life of things and stuff. I don't want my, my kids to divvy up all of my worldly possessions at the end of my life and say, well, that was what Nick was all about. Right? Mother Teresa died a few years back with two things to her name. She had two habits, which were the clothing that nuns wore, and she had a well-worn Bible. That was it. That was all she owned. That was everything of her life in terms of worldly possession. But life is not measured by the accumulation of things. Life is not measured by what you can control. Life is not measured by how you feel even in a moment. Your life, uh, <laughs> your life is the sum total of the things that you have done in and around the kingdom of God. This is what your life is based on. You know, there is a treasure, the Bible says, the scriptures talk about, that will never fade, that will never rust, that will never just be thrown on the, uh, the trash pile of history. And those things that last have eternal value. And we all know those things that last, right? 
We all know those things that have eternal value. They're things that will live on past us. They're those things that have true and lasting value. There's the, they're those things of the kingdom of God. There is that real love that's shared between people. There is the communication of the good news of Jesus into the soul of another person. There is uh, the, the true worship of God will last. It will last, and God will make those things last. And by not worshiping idols, by not worshiping idols, we're able to cling to things that are true that are good, that will last. So, last couple minutes here. How do, we, how do we identify idols in our own lives? Because, let's be honest, right? In America, in the 21st century, we don't really have a whole lot of actual little statues uh, that we worship, right? If I walked into any of your houses, you might not have a little person on the statue, and I say, what is that? And you say, oh, that's our house's God. His name is Baba Ganoush. And and, uh, and he helps me with taxes. I don't know. Uh, this, is not, this is not the case. <laughs> this is not the case in most of our homes. But we do have idols in our lives, don't we? We do have idols in our lives. And here's a couple keys maybe that will help you identify those things in your life. Those, those idols in your lives that you think make you feel good, that you actually worship, but will, are, are actually not for your good, right? So here's one. An idol is what you turn to instead of God to get what you want. We've talked about this kind of. Israel did this a lot, right? Israel wanted things. They wanted, uh, and especially as Israel went on in their history, they wanted to be a great nation. They wanted to conquer lands, and they would do all kinds of things that were not what God actually asked them to do in order to get those things. Because they knew they could kind of circumvent, or they thought they could kind of circumvent God and get what they wanted the way they wanted it. And so the question is, what do you turn to instead of God to get what you want? It's a good way of identifying an idol. Number two, an idol is a good thing that becomes a God thing, which makes it a bad thing. Did you know that you could make a good thing an idol? A good thing in your life. The church father Augustine talked a lot about this. He talked a lot about how we need to properly order our loves. That if we love something that's created too much, the weight of our love will crush it, will kind of rot it from the inside. A great example of this, loving your job is a good thing, right? Enjoying going to work. But if loving your job as though it were an ultimate thing, right, as though it were a God thing, will make you a workaholic and will cause you to neglect your family and friends. And though you might be a success at work, it will ultimately ruin your life, won't it? The same is true of relationships. It's good to love your spouse, right? It's good to love your spouse, but if you love them as though they were an ultimate thing, as though they were the, the God thing in your life, you will ruin that relationship. You will wreck it. You will be so codependent that your very life will be held within the hands of another person, and all they have to do is this, and you're done, right? And this also happens with our children. It happens with our children. Love your children, right? Love them well. But love them as though they were the highest love, as though they were your God, and you will obsess over your child, and you will cause more damage in that child's heart and mind than they were ever meant to carry because that God wasn't created to be, that child wasn't created to be your God. They were created to be your child, right? Because we were not created to worship things. 
or even people. We were created to worship the Creator. And if we love anything else in this ultimate way, if we worship anything other than God, our love turns into something corrosive. It turns into something that will damage the things we love. The things that we intended to love in the first place well, our love, our focus, our worship will actually end up ruining those things. And so anything in my life that I love and worship as though it were my God will ultimately turn out to be a bad thing. So that's two. Number three, identifying idols in our lives. An idol lives in our hearts before it escapes into our lives. You and I cultivate idols in our imaginations, in our hearts, first and foremost. And then at some point, they are unleashed on our lives. The man or woman who has an affair has done so a thousand times in their minds before they've ever done it in real life. The person who commits tax fraud is I know I went from affairs to tax fraud, but just bear with me here. The person who commits tax fraud has uh, contemplated said fraud in their heart before they ever misreport on their taxes, right? This is what Martin Luther said. That which uh, our heart clings uh, and interests itself is, I say, really your God. That to which your heart clings and interests itself, I say, is really your God. Because, once again, you become what you worship. You become what you worship. So what you are pondering in your minds, what you are turning over and over, what you are serving on a daily basis, what you're daydreaming about, what all of the energy of your life is going towards and working for, that's your God. Whether it has worked itself out into your actual tangible life yet or not. And before it is unleashed on your life, it takes up residence in your heart. It takes up residence in your heart. And you worship it there until it breaks out into your life and changes everything. This is why Jesus is so clear about the thing that really matters in the life of one of his disciples is not what they do externally, but rather what is in their heart, right? Jesus says this in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 27. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has committed adultery with her in his heart. The reason Jesus says this is not because uh, thinking about adultery is the exact same thing as actual adultery, right? We, uh, we are logical enough to know that they're different things. But he knows beyond a shadow of a doubt that if something is an idol in one's heart, it will naturally become an idol in one's life. There is a direct correlation between what is occurring in the heart and what is occurring in one's actual life. And the thing that is cultivated in your heart now will become an idol in your life then, once it, once it works its way out. And so we all have a kind of reckoning there, don't we? Because we all know the things that are in our minds. We all know the ways in which uh, I daydream about being a success, right? Right? as though success were my God. We all know the ways that we daydream about uh, having wealth or having significance or having uh, people love us and adore us. We all dream about the way that uh, these things could go in our lives this way or that way. And, and that thing, the more it's dwelt on, the more it takes up residence in our heart, becomes our God rather than God. 
And we'll go to that thing to feel worth, to feel significance, to feel good enough. We'll go to that, that place in the back of our minds in order to feel what we need to feel because we need something at that moment that we don't feel like God is uh, being for us. But, but, that thing will ultimately work its way out into our lives and it'll wreck us. It'll wreck us because we were not created to worship created things. We were, we were created to worship God. And if you worship the beer can with face on a stump, God, that will naturally work its way out into your life in weird ways. It will. You'll be a weird person. But if you worship God as God, if you worship God on God's terms, you will, you will find in your own life things beginning to move a little bit more smoothly because you will, be, uh, you will be moving in the flow of a good God who created you a very specific way. You will be living in line with the way that this God created you to live. And the things that you actually thought that you loved, the things that you thought that you needed to worship will become good things in your life rather than bad things in your life. This is what will happen. And so this morning, I'm a little over time, but this morning I just want to do one thing with us. Wherever you're at, right, right where you're at, I just want us to take one moment of reflection. Maybe something came up, in, maybe something came up for you this morning as I was preaching. Maybe something you're like, oh, goodness, that's an idol. I never thought about it, right? I just, want, I just want us to take one moment of reflection, just a minute, and that we would pray that God would show us those things in our lives that might need to be rooted out so that we could live the type of flourishing lives that God created us to live, right? And that you can ask God this morning, just in this moment, just in this moment, you can ask God this morning to help you with that thing. It won't, probably won't go away right away. It's not like this thing will get snatched from your heart, but rather that you would lean in maybe a little bit and ask God to help you work on that thing. Just a little bit. Just a little bit. All right? Let's pray. So just right where you're at right now, just in, in silence, and I'll stop talking in two seconds. And just ask God, what, what idols are there in my life? What idols are there in my life? God, would you root out the idols in our lives? Would you help us to both identify God and wean ourselves off of these things that we go to to make ourselves feel significant, to make ourselves feel comfortable, to make ourselves uh, feel in control? Would you help us, God, to know that the only way to freedom, the only way to the flourishing lives that you've created us to live is to worship you as you are? not as we want you to be, not as other people say you are, but as you actually are. And would you allow us to lean into that reality? Would you help us to see you for who you really are, the, the ferocity of your love for us, the genuineness of your grace towards us, the significance of your favor that rests upon us? If only we just turn to you, if only we would only turn to you and worship you as you are. And so this morning and this week and this next year, God, we ask that you would help us to wean ourselves off those idols, those things that we think make our lives easy but actually make us slaves.
And would we lean into the worship of the one true God? And would we see that God represented perfectly in the image, the icon of God, the only one who truly represents to us who God is, Jesus, our perfect example? Would we, learn, would we turn to that God? Would we turn to Jesus in, in, in our daily lives when we want to turn to something else and know that in the face of Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the reality of the God who we want to love? We pray that you would help us with that endeavor this week and this month and this year. And we pray it all in the name of that person, Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. So go today in the grace and in the peace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you.